0: Good morning. Well, Penny was a little concerned about her wedding day. As a matter of fact, she admitted that she had a deep, dark fear. This is a true story. It actually appeared in a magazine in Australia this past week of what Penny was willing to do to ensure that her wedding day was going to go exactly as she wanted it to. See, Penny felt that she was kind of a plain Jane sister. As a matter of fact, she referred to herself as sort of the Jan Brady in her family. She said she had two stunning sisters, and they were all very close. And up until the wedding, the three of them were actually living in uh, Penny's fiancé's house, which is not a great idea. Certainly wouldn't recommend that. But they were all living together. And the visit with the photographer kind of sealed the deal up for Penny. Because she realized when she met with that photographer how important it was to her that she stand out and be the beautiful bride that she really wants to be. So, even though she and her sisters were, as she described, super close, the wheels started turning. And she wanted to, as I quote, she, did, she wanted to be reminded until her last, she didn't want to be reminded until her last day on earth that she was a plain sister. And she didn't want to look ordinary on her wedding day. She described her and her sisters as fair-skinned blondes. So when she was devising her plans, she intentionally picked bright yellow neon dresses for her sisters to wear so they would appear as she would say washed out and slightly ill. (laughs) That wasn't the worst part of her plan. Penny began preparing what she called special slimming shakes. (laughs) And uh, in the mornings leading up to the big day, every morning she would make one of these slimming shakes. To, uh, to, to perform the duty of what she described as looking as their best uh, all of them looking at their best on, their, on her wedding day but what she was secretly doing and she didn't tell them was she was putting mega weight gain protein powder in her sister's smoothies every morning that she bought at a bodybuilding shop as a matter of fact she went as far as to buy the slimming shake containers she emptied out the contents and put the mega weight game powder inside all the while she was just drinking some water and, and coconut chunks in her smoothie and then she said at first i went easy but by the month before the wedding i was adding triple the prescribed amount into maggie and charlie's smoothie those were her sisters leaving my own is simply fruit and coconut water then when the wedding day finally dawned the bride was thrilled that her stunt as she says worked like a charm as Maggie and Charlie each had to have their own gowns altered for their thickening waistlines. She said, the day went off without a hitch. Everyone had a great time. She said, I never thought for a moment on my wedding day that I wasn't the center of attention or the most important person in the room. She said, and now when I look back on my wedding photos, as I, as I do often as we've got them displayed around the house, she said, I sometimes feel a twinge of guilt that I'm standing there glowing and gorgeous in my, my bridal gown, and my sisters are looking washed out and chubby. <laughs> but she said, I mostly feel happy, <clears throat> including that she's glad Maggie and Charlie have both lost the weight that they unknowingly gained at her hands. Now, there's something seriously lacking in the character of this young woman who, who pulled off this stunt it's actually a character quality that most employers are desperately seeking and finding it increasingly hard to find. It's a quality that every consumer expects of someone that provides them any kind of service. It's what we expect of our politicians, it's what we expect of those in law enforcement, it's what we expect of those in ministry. And that character quality that I'm talking about is integrity integrity increasingly hard to find and desperately needed in the world we live in today that's what we're going to talk about today this subject of integrity as a matter of fact we find two of the greatest examples of integrity in the chapter that we're going to be looking at today in ruth chapter three so today we'll be in ruth chapter three and we'll start with verses one through five actually yes one through five you would please stand with me for the reading of god's word At that time, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you so you will be secure. Now Boaz, with those female servants you worked, is our close relative. Look, tonight he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor. So bathe yourself, rub on some perfumed oil, and get dressed up. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let the man know you're there until he finishes his meal. When he gets ready to go to sleep, take careful notice of the place where he lies down. Then go uncover his legs and lie down beside him. He will tell you what you should do. Ruth replied to Naomi, I will do everything you have told me to do. may be seated. We're in the middle of a series on Ruth right now about loving God's way. And this morning we're entering into Act 3 of the book of Ruth. Again, Act 3 is divided up into three different scenes. As we go through this chapter, we'll go through these different scenes. And again, we're talking on this subject of integrity. Uh, So what I'd like to do this morning is first we're going to define integrity. We'll talk about what it is. It's actually easier to talk about what it is than actually to see what integrity does. So as we go through this chapter, we'll see what integrity doesn't do. And then we'll also see what it does. Scene 1, we'll see what integrity doesn't do. We'll see what it does. We'll go to scene two, we'll see what integrity doesn't do, we'll see what it does. And then we'll bring it a little bit closer to home uh, and talk about integrity in our own lives. So we're going to jump in now, and I would like to talk about what integrity is, and it's a fairly easy word to define. As a matter of fact, if you are just to look up uh, a, a dictionary definition, it would say the state of being whole or undivided. It comes from this root word, Integrated. It speaks to a person who is who they say they are all the time, okay? That is to walk with integrity. And perhaps the definition I like the most, this is one that comes from C.S. Lewis. He says, integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. Doing the right thing even when no one is watching. That means if if you're on a team and your coach tells you to run 10 laps uh, and he steps out of the gym, it means you run 10 laps. Uh, That means when the boss tells you how to do something, even when he walks away, you execute it the way he's asked, whether or not he's looking. So that's what integrity is, just very briefly. I just wanted to to touch on that before we go on. And I want to spend the rest of our time, like I said, talking about what integrity doesn't do and also what it does. Let's keep that in mind as we walk through this text this morning. Now, for the sake of review, let's just talk about where we've come from. In in Ruth chapter 1, act 1. The day is Act 3. The book is very much laid out like a, like a play or a movie. Uh, we've seen the lives of women playing out in front of our eyes. <clears> there <throat> was a man named Elimelech in chapter 1 that moved his family to the land of Moab. And while they were there, uh, both he and his two sons died, leaving a widow and, uh, and, and two widowed daughter in laws there in the land of Moab. And then when the famine broke, they all decided to move. Back to the land of Israel. Orpah, one daughter-in-law, decided to stay in the land of Moab. Ruth decided to move back with uh, her mother-in-law, Naomi, to the land of Israel in Bethlehem. That was against Naomi's wishes. But Naomi, uh, rather Ruth, insisted that she move back. At the end of chapter 1, this one statement is highlighted. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. That was the state that we left Naomi in at the end of chapter 1. Then we move into Acts 2 and chapter 2. Glimmers of hope start to change Naomi's bitter heart. We see this seemingly random event of Ruth going to a field, which actually turns out to be the hand of God, leading them to this man named Boaz. Ruth takes this loving initiative to find food, and she ends up in the field of this, this kinsman named Boaz. And he shows this undeserved concern to Ruth making sure she has all she needs, and actually then some, some food left over. Uh, And then he tells her that it's her unselfish deeds in helping her mother-in-law that she'd earned it. Then at the end, we see a woman who, at the end of chapter 1, Naomi, was bitter, is actually filled with gratitude, and she's thankful, and she's rejoicing. So she's moved out of that bitterness to this state of gratitude and and, and praise. So now then we come into Acts chapter 3. And once again, we're stepping into three different scenes. So here we are, uh, we're in scene one, and what we see is some scheming going on. Uh, and at first glance, Naomi kind of seems like one of those, uh, maybe you've had an overzealous family member or friend who just kind of says, you know, I'm tired of you being single. We're going we're gonna to do something about this, okay? And maybe that was well-received, and, and I think normally it's probably not well-received, But it seems like that's what is going on. She's kind of an uninvited matchmaker. Um, But then we see there in verse 1 that Naomi is actually very interested in getting her now-widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth, a home where she'll be provided for. That's her chief concern. And that place, home, can mean a place of rest, somewhere where she's going to be taken care of. Um, It can be difficult for a woman at that time to to work, and she needed a loving husband. That's what what Naomi wanted for her daughter-in-law. She wanted Ruth to find this... Loving husband, so we've got this legitimate concern, and there's something very important to note here. Boaz could act as redeemer of property and persons. He could be a lever. We talked about this a little bit last time. He could be a lever in that he um, could come in and help uh, in marrying a family member to redeem the name, if if. A woman were to lose her husband at that time and she had no son a brother-in-law a brother of the deceased man could step in marry the widow and provide her with a son to carry on the man's name carrying on your name was of utmost importance in Israel at this time because frankly they they didn't have a, a lot of knowledge about the afterlife so they were motivated about having an heir they wanted their name to continue they, they didn't really fully understand God had not yet fully revealed what eternal life was going to look like it was very important to them to have an heir that their name could continue. Boaz, although he wasn't a brother-in-law, he was a close relative of the family, and he could act as that that lever, which is just Latin for for brother-in-law. Naomi senses this. She senses this willingness in Boaz because of what he's done already. Now, her sole motivation in this is that of her daughter-in-law. Even though this kind of marriage could benefit Naomi, that's not necessarily going to be the case. She doesn't know. Actually, if Ruth's needs are taken care of, remember it was Ruth that went out and gleaned for Naomi. If she gets her needs taken care of, frankly, Naomi doesn't fully know where that's going to leave her. And yet, she's very interested in finding a home and place of rest for Ruth, even if it means losing her source of food. Now that's integrity. And it goes hand in hand with this topic that we've been talking about called hesed, or chesed. this loyal love. And I mentioned last time if you've been to Israel, the Hasidic Jews, that, that comes from that word hesed. They're the ones that have the long spiraling sideburns and wear the hat and you see him praying in front of the wailing wall oftentimes. But Naomi is primarily not concerned about herself. In other words, she is not seeking self-preservation. So the first thing that integrity does not seek, it is not fueled or or motivated by self-preservation. That's one thing it isn't. And then we move on in verse 2. Naomi there lays out some facts that she knows that Boaz is a kinsman uh, and, and had Ruth work with his own servants that shows some solidarity there. And because of the time of year that he was going to be working on the threshing floor. Now, sometimes a picture uh, will paint a thousand words. So this, this uh, threshing floor, it would look something like this. It was normally round. It, it oftentimes sat on top of a hill and they would have to smash all the grains. They would drag a sled behind a horse and they would crush up the grain. And it was crushed, as it was crushed up, the grain would separate from the husk. So uh, then you uh, would take a fork or something, they would call it a winnowing fork sometime, they would dig into that crushed um, grain and, and husk and they would throw it up in the air. And as they threw it up in the air, the grain would fall back to the ground and the husks would be whisked away. So that's how they would go about separating the wheat from the chaff. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, the grain from the, the husk itself that was, that was very light. So, uh, Naomi knew that night, this is where Boaz was going to be. It was probably cooler at night. He'd be sleeping there and um, probably by himself and guarding the grain that they had already harvested and was waiting to, to be processed. And then we get to verses 3 through 5. And now she starts giving some really specific instructions. And it gets very interesting here. Because she's going to tell her to bathe herself, rub on some perfumed oil, get dressed up, then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let the man know you're there until he finishes his meal. When he gets ready to go to sleep, take careful notice of the place he lies down. Then go and uncover his legs. Lie down beside him, and he'll tell you what you should do. Then Ruth replied, I'll I'll do everything you've told me. So what in the world is going on here? Uh, It's a little uncomfortable, to be quite honest. Um, She's getting herself all prettied up. She's smelling good. She puts on her best dress. Now, primarily, that would have signaled... That her period of mourning was over so boaz seeing this that she had gotten dressed up that she wasn't in sullen clothing but she had brightened up with all that she was doing that her period of mourning was done remember she was a widow she's going where boaz is located where he's going to spend the night but she's going to kind of hide right she's going to kind of hide until he's done eating his meal When he's done eating, he'd be more relaxed. He'd be in a a better mood. I can relate. So he's tired. He's probably a little groggy. And then what? He lies down, probably falls asleep, but then she's to walk over and uncover his leg. I I remember the first time I saw it, I thought, was this some kind of weird Hebrew custom? I mean, what's going on in this this verse? Is this something they knew about that we didn't? Um, And she says that that she'll then lie down. She'll do all of it. And, And this... Frankly, these verses have been widely, widely discussed in in a lot of commentaries about what exactly is is happening here. What is her intent, really, is what we're we're getting at. Um, Not to mention that oftentimes prostitutes would come to these threshing floors. That was not an uncommon thing. But this, even though it has the appearance um, of almost something like a seduction, that is not what is going on here. Uh, In essence, essence, Ruth is making the statement that I'm available for marriage. Um, Uncovering his legs would have simply been to make him cold and to wake him up. It was cool at night. Uh, It wasn't some kind of a weird custom or anything like that. Uh, Now, this, this part is interesting. In Jewish ritual, you could actually consummate a marriage on the night of a betrothal. And then announce to everyone that you were married. Now, that was not uncommon, but it wasn't a necessity either. But that could be done. Um, And then you would have a a public announcement and then probably a public ceremony. But that could happen on the night of a betrothal. Um, And again, last week, though, we saw Boaz portrayed as a godly man. So it wasn't like he had been making passes at this young Moabite woman or anything like that. Likewise, we see Ruth also embodying this quality of this loyal love by Israelite standards. Now, Moabite standards would have been something else. But remember, she has agreed to live by the God of Naomi. Now, this scheme that Naomi has concocted, that she's instructed Ruth to do, and Ruth is willing to go along with it, is extremely risky. Remember, Boaz is this godly man, and this is something that prostitutes would do. So what was he going to do? Because he could have just shooed her away uh, as being kind of an immoral woman. Remember, she, he's been a very godly man up to this point. So he could have just shooed her away, you know, get away from me, I don't know what you're doing here. Or something else could happen. He could have taken it as a, as a proposition. But what Naomi hopes will happen is that he will see she's not dressed like a prostitute and that he's going to look, overlook all of the irregularities of what's going on here. And there are a lot of irregularities. Um, first, you've got a woman proposing to a man, um, you've got a younger person proposing to an older person, you have a field worker proposing to the field owner, you've got an alien proposing to a native. And she's saying that at the end of this, Ruth, he's going to take over the situation. So you've got all these dynamics that are happening. But obviously Naomi, she's got a strong faith here. And it's in something that she's seen in Boaz. She's seen his integrity and how she believes God is going to govern his actions. And by the way, as we're being taken along in this story, we are being encouraged to trust the same God, in the same way that Ruth and Naomi are. So in these first five verses, where we've seen that Naomi is primarily not interested in self-preservation, but rather she's willing to take a risk and even make sacrifices if it's necessary, because Ruth may not stick around, we see these two things. One, integrity is not fueled or motivated by self-preservation. But rather, it does call for necessary sacrifices. Naomi was willing to sacrifice her security for the sake of Ruth. For the sake of Ruth getting this home that she believes is necessary. Now, uh, self-preservation is a very natural thing. Um, We tend to do it. And and sometimes the sacrifices that you and I may be called to do, uh, frankly, may not be a big deal. Sometimes integrity just calls for a sacrifice of time. As a matter of fact, I remember an incident. whenever I was living in Dallas, Texas. I just started working for a company. And I was very busy at the time, and I had to go on a business trip while, while I was in seminary. And I remember I got my plane tickets. I showed up at the, the counter, and I was ready to leave. And I, I handed my ticket to the, uh, the woman there, and she looked at him, and she looked at me, and she looked at him, and she looked at me. And she said, sir, you're 24 hours late. Do you know that? And I thought, oh, this is not good. I just started working for this company, and this is, not a, this is not going to exactly instill a lot of confidence in, uh, in me that I'd ordered the, the ticket 24 hours before I was supposed to leave. And she's looking at me, and she sees I, I, the only thing that came out of my mouth is like, well, well, what do I do? Like, I didn't know. And then she looks at She kind of shakes her head. She's, she's mildly irritated. And then she starts just typing. She's shaking her head. And I hear her mumble a few things. I heard her mumble something like, if this had been anybody else standing here. And she just keeps talking. And it looks at me as like, you know, you're lucky. She didn't say, but you're lucky that I'm the one. So she kept going in and she said, okay, I've got you booked on the next flight today. Now, I had no clue that she could do that. I was standing there ready to write out some horrible personal check to just try to make this all go away. But she was willing to sacrifice her time to be able to make something that she was showing integrity. Now she knew that, she probably knew that both flights weren't fully booked. She knew, she knew that I had paid for the ticket. Um, and, and she was very gracious. But that was, it was a sacrifice for her to be able to do that. Do you ever have the opportunity to make that kind of sacrifice for the sake of integrity? Have you ever had to make a sacrifice like this? Because in your heart of hearts you knew what was going to be the right thing to do. And you chose, over preserving yourself, your own time, your own finances, where it may be. You chose, rather, to make a necessary sacrifice for the sake of integrity. Naomi was potentially going to lose her meal ticket. Ruth, by implementing this little plan of hers, she doesn't know what's going to happen. She doesn't know how Boaz is going to respond. This could end it for both of them. She believes he'll respond positively. Then we come to the end of scene one. Uh, Again, the curtain drops, the scheme has been laid out, the plans have been made, but what's actually going to happen? In verses 6 and 7, Ruth carefully does everything Naomi instructed. Then we get to Boaz. How will he respond? We see it in verses 8 and 9. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Some versions may say, spread your skirt over me. So there we have his response. He's a bit surprised to find this woman there. Now remember, this is in the dark days of Israel. This is the time of the judges where men were doing what was right in their own eyes. Um, but not so with Boaz. Remember, Boaz is an Israelite unlike other Israelites. Uh, he didn't immediately recognize her. She said, "I'm Ruth, and that what comes next is the equivalent of an ancient Hebrew marriage proposal. This ambiguous word she uses k-nape. Uh, it can mean a, a bird's wings. Or the corners of someone's garment. It was a metaphor that God used when he talked about making a refuge for his people. That he would gather them under his wings to give them protection. Boaz immediately understood it to be a marriage proposal. And he didn't take advantage of her in any way. In short, Naomi's plan had worked. He responds in verses 10 through 13. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after younger men, whether rich or poor. He never condemns her as an immoral woman. Instead, he pronounces a blessing over her in verse 10. He promises to do all she asks in verse 11. He does reveal a complication in verse 11. Um, he, He reveals in verse 11 that there's going to be another kinsman redeemer. And then he offers words of reassurance to her. Ruth stays till morning. Scene two then ends. In in scene three, the curtain goes back up. In the remaining verses, she takes more food back to Naomi, her mother-in-law, tells her all that has happened, and Naomi then tells her to wait. Wait and see what's going to happen with this other kinsman, Redeemer. So it has gone as good as it possibly could have gone up to this point. Everything that Naomi hoped would happen has happened. There will be this issue of another man who could be a kinsman redeemer, though, to deal with. And because of Boaz's integrity in this matter, he cannot do as he wishes. Because he wishes to marry Ruth. But he's abiding by the spirit of the law. So this brings about this secondary thing that integrity is not. Integrity does not seek immediate gratification. But rather, it seeks honesty. Ruth did not know about this near kinsman. I'm not sure that many would have, frankly, but Boaz knew it in his heart. And he knew the truth. I can remember when I was in eighth grade hearing a man come and talk to our class. He, he owned a local company. He said, you know, the, the number one thing I'm looking for in an employee is honesty. I wish I'd listened to him. Um, because I can remember in my, one of my first jobs, I think I was, like, I was like 17, and I started working for this local landscaper. Uh, and he had this notoriously fierce temper. Uh, he'd get real mad. He'd get real mad at the drop of the hat. And, and frankly, I was terrified of this guy because you didn't know how he was going to respond. I remember one time uh, we were working out on a job. My brother actually got me this job. I don't know why I'm adding that fact. It's, it's good, a good loving brother got me this job with this man who had a horrible temper. That's, that's, that's what I'm saying here. So I started working with this guy. He said, all right, he said, I think he called me by Cowan. Cowan, go get some bushes over at Green's Feed and Seed and bring them here to this job site we're working on. So I hear what he said. I go racing over to Green's Feed and Seed. I pick up, I think it was seven bushes. Now, I had not a clue about bushes. Like, I, I knew that they were there in these pots. I just whipped up my car to the ones that were closest and went in and told Mr. Green, hey, I'm getting these bushes. He said, all right. I load them up in my car, and I go to the job site. I, I lay them all out there. Well, my boss comes over, and he just erupts. And he said, these are the worst-looking bushes I've ever seen in my entire life. He said, they're all scraggly and they're brown. I was like, uh, uh uh And he just kept going on and on and on. And he looked at me and he said, hey. He said, did Green pick these out? And I looked at him. And I said, yes, he did. He just—I oh, knew what that guy I was like. Oh, you know, I know he picked him out there. I did what I—Green, Mr. Green, if you're out there, I apologize. I'm sorry about that. That's what you call self-preservation. Um, I wasn't being honest. I wasn't seeking what was best. And by the way, they've discovered that when it comes to lies, little lies um, can turn into big lies. Um, I wanted the immediate gratification of not being in trouble. I wanted the immediate gratification of being able to to walk out of there and not get yelled at anymore. But I lied. As a matter of fact, in the New York Times, they did a study called why big liars often start out as small ones that actually verified this. This idea of little lies can turn into bigger ones. Um, Participants in this study, as a matter of fact, um, were asked to advise a partner in another room about how many pennies were in a jar. So they did a study on on what happens when you start telling little lies. uh, And and they wanted to see how it affected your brain. So when the subjects believed that lying about the amount of money was to their benefit, um, they were inclined to be dishonest and their, their lies would start escalating over time. So they were in one room describing a picture of a jar. They had a partner that they were describing the, uh, the picture of the money in the jar to. And if it was of their benefit, they would say the person would start telling little lies about the amount of money in the jar. Then they discovered that when negative emotional signals associated with lying decrease, that the person will start to tell bigger lies. In other words... As the person tells more lies, they can actually measure that the brain is becoming desensitized to the lies. And one of the researchers said this, think about it like perfume. You buy a new perfume and it smells strongly, and after a few days later it smells less, and a month later you don't smell it at all. So what could start as a little lie today could turn into something bigger tomorrow. Lying just does not work with practicing integrity. The two just don't go together. So let me bring this a little closer to home. Because then what does integrity look like in our own lives? And the truth is, integrity is essential everywhere. It's essential all over the workplace. Uh, Fifty years ago, a man named Elton Trueblood, he served as a chaplain to both Harvard, and Stanford Universities, he wrote this. He said, it is hard to think of any job in which the moral element is lacking. The skill of the dentist is wholly irrelevant if he is unprincipled and irresponsible. There is little in that case to keep him from extracting teeth unnecessarily because the patient is usually in a helpless situation. It is easy to see that harm can be done by an unprincipled lawyer. Indeed, such a man is far more dangerous if he is skilled than if he is not skilled that's by elton trueblood it's essential all over the place it's not just in these fields it's in whatever field you are working in wherever you find yourself i can promise you integrity is is essential to the business it's essential we start talking about our character before god if you're a student you have the opportunities to use someone else's answers or to use your own you've got the opportunity to plagiarize something and use something that's not yours without giving Credit to the person that actually wrote it. If you're in a relationship, if you're dating somebody, and you know that person isn't the one, you know, you're, then why do you keep stringing them along? Isn't it better to be honest with that person with whom you're in that relationship? It's important in marriage, because if trust is broken, it is hard to bring it back. Boaz did what he believed in his heart to be the right thing to do. He didn't do what he could have, but he did what he should have. And he committed himself to being honest. So if I was going to sum this up into just one statement, I would say practice integrity by making necessary sacrifices and by being honest. Um, I'd like to close by mentioning three women um, three women that I'm, I'm guessing that you've probably never heard of, but they were actually Time Magazine's Persons of the Year in 2002. Our names are Sharon Watkins, uh, Colleen Rowley, and Cynthia Cooper. Now, what did these women do? Sharon Watkins is the one who wrote a letter to the CEO of Enron stating her opposition to unscrupulous accounting practices and testified before Congress. Colleen Rowley was a woman who pleaded with the FBI to investigate an individual who would turn out to be a key player in the September 11th attacks. And Cynthia Cooper uh, is the one who went to the board at WorldCom to inform them that the company had hidden several million dollars in losses. All three women risked their careers, their friendships, and their private lives to blow the whistles, to blow the whistle on these companies. And this is what was written about them. It says they were people who did right just by doing their jobs rightly, which means ferociously with eyes open and with the bravery the rest of us always hope we have and may never know if we do. Their lives may not have been at stake, but Watkins, Rowley, and Cooper put pretty much everything else on the line. Their jobs, their health, their privacy, their sanity, they risked all of them to bring us badly needed words of trouble inside crucial institutions. Martin Luther King summed it up very well like this. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Please pray with me. Father, help us to have the courage and the guts that it takes to live with integrity. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the ultimate example of an integrity. You gave up everything to make the ultimate sacrifice for us. Lord, even though we despise you, you loved us enough to give up your life for us. I pray that we would die to self like you. And Lord Jesus, in your holy and precious name we pray, amen. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here today.